Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit MDGamblingHelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. The opinions expressed on this WebmasterRadio.fm program are those of the host, guests, and callers, and do not reflect those of the staff, management, or advertisers of WebmasterRadio.fm. Any rebroadcast or retransmission of this program without the express written consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot-button Internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on Internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Hi, this is Bennett Kelly, and you're listening to the Cyber Law and Business Report. We're glad to have you here today. We had a very busy show. Um, first, we must do a little patting on the back. Um, if you may recall, two, two or three weeks ago, we had Matt Schaefer on, and he was talking about his pending litigation with the state of Colorado over their um, Amazon-ish um, type law. And um, right after he got off the air, the court granted his injunction. And then last week, as you may recall, we had discussion about the whole Twitter revolution, happening in the Middle East, and uh, particularly with a focus on what's happening in Egypt. And then a couple of days later, wouldn't you know it, Hosea Mubarak steps down. So clearly we've become a powerful force in world politics. And um, so, and for all you Red Sox fans, um, try to get, get someone from the Red Sox on the show and maybe we'll win the World Series this year. But in any event, um, on, on a more serious note, we have a great panel today. We're going to be talking about the Do Not Track proposal that has been floated by the FTC and now introduced in Congress. And joining us today first will be Christopher Calabrese. He's with the ACLU Legislative Council for Technology and Privacy Issues. We're going to have also Baron Zoka, the president of Tech Freedom. And then the, the always entertaining Dan Tynan from East Sarcasm, who's also a contributing editor to a number of um, popular magazines. So um, why don't we start off with Chris. Chris, thank, welcome to the show. Do we Thanks have for you? having me. Thank you. Um, really good to have you. And so it's been a, a very busy week with all the talk about do not track and, and Representative Congressman Spears are um, 
two bills that she introduced, uh, why don't you uh, tell, kind of introduce the, the whole subject of Do Not Track for those who aren't familiar with it? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, you know, not everyone is aware that the, the Internet has shifted a little bit in the last couple of years in terms of its fundamental advertising model. We've shifted from a model of, of simply displaying ads based on the content of the page, for example, to displaying ads based on you, based on an individualized knowledge of the person doing the surfing. So, you know, and a person, you know, searches for a particular pair of cargo pants on a website. They may find those cargo pants are following them around the web. And, you know, they're seeing them in every ad. Well, that happens because third party third parties, advertising networks, the people who place those ads on the side of, of websites, are are tracking each of us as we move around the internet. They're they're just you know they're following us as we go from ESPN.com to to you know Newsweek to Time Magazine, and they're keeping track of our viewing habits and our interests. The ACLU is very concerned about this practice because the byproduct of this, of course, is the creation of detailed profiles on all of us, on our reading habits, on our interests, on what we do online. And we think that has enormous implications for the way we learn information online and for our privacy, so for our fundamental First and Fourth Amendment rights. And, you know, the do not track list is a way, or the do not track mechanism, I should say, is a way for a consumer to opt out of this process, to say, I don't want to be tracked as I move around the web. Now, one of the means by which they would, um, a consumer could make that option would be through its browser. And some of the browsers are offering that capability. And, for example, um, Internet Explorer 9 has the ability for, I, I believe, to inc- include a list of um, sites that you can block that will be prevented from tracking, tracking you. Is that correct? That's correct. There's a couple of different browser-based models. So it's important to be clear that, you know, we would not advocate any mechanism. We would not en- advocate any particular technological mechanism to do this. I mean, we don't think Congress should be in the tech mandate business. We think that Congress should mandate that providers, you know, provide certain rights, and then it's, of course, up to the businesses to figure out the best and least intrusive way to do that. There's a variety. I I agree with you. Every time I've met with Congress, I always tell them that, you know, technology, legislate actions, not technology, because the minute you try to legislate technology, by the time you figure it out and pass the law, the technology is already outdated. Um, The conduct still continues. So, um, on on the whole mechanism of how a do not track would work, mm-hmm. um, one you could do it one if I'm visiting um, aclu.org and yeah I don't want you guys tracking me that there would be sure. some mechanism in my browser that I could just click and say I, I don't want to be tracked by you is that correct? That's that would be one possible avenue. That's something that Mozilla has has pursued as an, a potential browser flag that would tell people not to track you. And then the other option would be to have some kind of list of, um, or you know, some service would provide me with a list of sites that um, I could tailor, or they would tailor to um, determine what what sites I could get information. You know, would get information from me, and which ones wouldn't. Is that, is that how it would work? Or is, or and that's, is the, that's something the Internet Explorer has has considered and has you know made a feature of its most recent browser. So where does that list come from? 
Well, that, and that's a great question. I mean, I don't think, I mean, Microsoft has said that they don't want to be in the list compiling business. And, you know, so it's not clear. It's not clear that the list-based approach is the way to go. I mean, it may be that the FTC is the entity that should be creating that list. Um, it, perhaps it's a, it's a different independent entity. It's a... Um, but you know, I think there's there's a number of unanswered questions about the particular mechanism. But I think it's 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 clear that there's a number of parties that are interested in solving this problem that see it as a real concern that we're tracking people online and consumers really don't like it. The the concern I have about the list is that you you, you have circumstances such as in Australia where the government was ostensibly um, scanning and, and bl- blocking certain websites. Um, under the guise of preventing child pornography, but when WikiLeaks discovered that they were actually blocking a number of political organizations and um, some gay organizations and others, that that they, you give too broad an authority and you end up actually maybe um, creating the means as to gag um, legitimate speech on the internet. And of course, I mean the ACLU would, you know, vigorously oppose anything. The gag speech on the internet. I mean, we've been protecting free speech for 90 years now. We've brought some of the seminal internet free speech cases, including ACLU v. Reno. So, uh, you know, there, we, we, you know, we would never endorse any mechanism that we thought would stifle speech. Um, but we do feel like it's possible to protect people's privacy, which is to say protect the surreptitious tracking of them as they move around the web without stifling speech in any way. Now, the response to the, your your position is that you know hurting the ability to provide tailored ads to consumers is only going to result in um, more more shotgun approach to advertising, or alternatively, there'll be less advertising, but consumers will be have to pay for access to websites. Um, is that a, a, a do you, do you find that to be a, a likely possibility? I'm I'm not candidly persuaded by that argument. Um, I mean, we've had advertising-supported media for hundreds of years. It is not behavioral targeting has not been a part of that process for you know maybe the last couple of years. It's been it played a small role. So I think it's a little bit premature to say that if we don't do this particular targeted and very invasive type of advertising. Suddenly, that's going to mean that you know all of these free services based on advertising are going to go away. So basically, it, it's a win-win. You can you'll still have robust advertising on the web, and but consumers, those that at least choose to, um, yeah. will will then be able to determine what they're sharing and what they're not. I mean, I think that's the, the the essence of it. I mean, we really want to give consumers back control over who's watching them as they move around the web and let them know that they have the, the right to access materials, to read about controversial subjects without any worry that that's going to end up in a file. I mean, one of the things we've seen that's been really disturbing about this is it's not just online information. It's being quickly linked with offline information as well because, of course, there's an enormous amount of information about us that's already being collected about marketers and put in profiles. So the idea that we could have this giant profile on each of us that was both our online and offline information that could be sold and shared with anybody, with employers, other advertisers, the government, I mean, that's a very disturbing trend. 
No, I, I understand that point. The mm-hmm. um, one, one other concern, though, is that um, you, you're familiar with what happened last on April 1st with GameStation? I'm sorry, I'm not. Actually, um, let, me, let me do a, a do-over, uh, a mulligan. Sure. You know, one, one concern is that the, con- the consumers really don't want this or aren't really that concerned. You know, the polls may show the concern, but they don't tend to act on it. And you may recall an April Fool's of uh, an English game site, um, GameStation, um, put in its terms and conditions that um, unless you opt out, and w- for which they offered you five pounds, um, you grant to them an option to your soul um, in, in perpetuity. And I think it was something in the neighborhood of 70 or so percent um, you know, did not opt out and <laughs> granted a license to their soul. And so it's the extent that consumers don't um, make, take the initiative to do this, um, to, to take these measures to block um, you know, people from tracking them. Do you really think this would be effective? Well, I think that just illustrates that you know, the current model is broken. I mean, the notice and choice system, which is where we have where you provide these voluminous notices and this sort of illusory choice, just isn't an effective model. I mean, there's nowhere else to go where you can, you know, not give up your rights. I mean, they all the sites have these, you know, very invasive terms of service. I mean, you're right, though. Consumers have said they don't favor online tracking by large percentages. They don't favor it even if it, they think it keeps costs down and allows visits to free websites. So they, they do oppose it. It's just that they don't have a mechanism to express that choice, and that's precisely what this do not track list would provide them with. Now, I, I guess I, I disagree with you, your assessment. Um, first of all, I think one thing that the, um, the whole incident um, shows is that there's just definitely a market for the sole business. So. <laughs> um, but the second thing is, if consumers aren't taking that action, are, are you then are you then actually responding to something that there really isn't a crying need for? Are, are, are you being paternalistic in essence by saying, "Well, you don't you don't really haven't done anything about this, but we think we think you should, and so here we're going to create these protections for you." Well, see, I think it's precisely the opposite. We're allowing for a market-based choice. I mean, if you, in fact, do want behavioral advertising, as many people who provide behavioral advertising claim, then you can choose to do that. If you don't, you can choose not to. But you get to exercise a meaningful choice that's provided by regulation rather than essentially being having the choice taken away from you and being you know, given essentially the choice between a shrimp, shrink-wrapped term of service and nothing. Now, what would be the likely default under the different browser scenarios? Well, I think the default would be, uh, I think you would have to opt out. I think it would be an affirmative choice. I mean, it's a do not track opt out, not an opt in. And so you would have to opt out, but uh, would there be built-in ways to have a broad opt out? Or or most likely the the browser um, that will be adopted would be an, an option where you just opt out site by site? You know, I think that that's a very good question. I think it's it's one of the reasons that we think the FTC needs to be involved in this. I personally think that consumers will have more confidence in an opt out that has you know that has some interface with the government, the way that people go to the 
do not call list, for example, and do it and do their opt out there. But it may be that that's that's not necessary, and in fact, simply going and making the change on your browser is enough. I, I think that's a question of consumer preference and, and how consumers, you know, the best way to get consumers to understand that they have the choice. So it's a consumer preference, consumer education issue. Now, but in terms of initially when the Do Not Track proposal came about, it was in the context of you know kind of mirroring the the, the Do Not Call list, and um, in the irony there was that you were actually giving up more information to the government in order to stop um, them from tracking you, and right, um, that it, you know, it seemed kind of counterintuitive. And I think that's probably, and that's why the proposals have moved away from that. I think now. Um, one thing that struck me, I was at the um, FTC's um, Berkeley roundtable on privacy of one of the three they had over the last year and a half on this issue to come, that led to them coming up with this proposal. And it, it just the amount of people that are attending these um, workshops and the, you know, the number of hearings we've had in Congress over the last few years – and and now you know, early in this Congress, you know, this becoming a quick priority. The question I have, though, is how many people have committed suicide because of the behavioral advertising? I have no idea. And I imagine it, it's none. And that it just seems that we, we privacy, granted, not to minimize its importance, but it has such so dominated the internet policy debate. Whereas issues such as cyber harassment really kind of get the, the um, they're over off in the in the hinterland, and they are, are maybe not getting the attention they deserve or the resources they deserve. And um, you know, do you think this is the number one abuse on the internet today? Um, you know, tracking consumers. We're talking about a fundamental shift. We've already seen a fundamental shift in how people access information. They, by and large, access it online. And it's certainly true that as, you know, over the next decade, that will become increasingly true. You know, all of those surfing habits, all of those reading habits, everything they're doing is being tracked. That's a pretty fundamental change. We've moved from having a society where essentially you were moving around offline, and there was clearly some tracking. There's surveillance cameras. There's a fair amount of offline tracking. But to an area online where it's possible to track on a granular level everyone's movements, their reading habits, their associations. So, yeah, I think that's a pretty significant issue. I think it's pretty fundamental to American society and American values, and it merits a, an extensive debate. And it, just to kind of piggyback on what you said, and you know, we have only a little bit of time left, but the ACLU was also involved in the recent lawsuit with um, Amazon versus the state of North Carolina. And there yeah. that would actually involve um, you know, kind of the combination of you know, the private sector gathering their information and then turning it over to the government um, for taxing purposes and, um, and who knows what else they would do with it. That's right, and we and we very we very firmly cite Amazon and resisting that government request for information precisely because we're worried about turning over people's reading habits and their research habits to the government, and, and, and rightfully so. Um, but anything else you'd like to add on this? Is a, is kind of before we we close this chapter, and we thank you for coming on for for this today. Sure. No, I mean it's just been my pleasure to chat, and I uh, 
I appreciate the chance to talk a little bit about Do Not Track. I think this is an important discussion. Online privacy is something that, you know, is, is still very much up in the air in terms of what people's rights will be. And, you know, I'm glad we're having the debate. It seems that um, privacy legislation is the, is the waiting for Godot of, of Congress. That we, we, we keep talking about this, this big privacy bill that's going to be coming, but never seems to really get much movement. Do you see there really being much movement this year in, on privacy in Congress? You know, I have seen a lot of movement. I've seen a lot of hearings. I've seen bills filed, and I know there's a number of other bills that are in the wings. So, you know, I'll agree. But, you know, the fact is that there's a lot of issues before Congress that are sort of waiting for Godot, and I love that analogy. I mean, there's many. <laughs> there's a lot of problems in the United States, a lot of issues that people would like to see addressed, and Congress takes up very few of them. I mean, that's simply the way it is. But there has been a lot of interest in this issue, and I, I think that it clearly merits it. I was previously with the Playwrights Congressional Lobby. <laughs> but, no, <laughs> but thank you very much for being on the thank show. You. It was a pleasure. And um, um, also, for those of you, you know, on the West Coast, there was a great profile in the Los Angeles Times of the um, outgoing director of the ACLU in Southern California who served, um, I believe, something like 40 years and um, yeah. Ramona Ripton, who's kind of a force of nature. So um, it was in Sunday's LA Times. I recommend you take a look at it. And thank you very much, Chris. It was a pleasure. Thank you. It was good to talk to you. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Oh, yeah. My day is done. Time for happy hour. You're already done for the day? Yeah, because I use CertifiedKnowledge.org. Their PPC tools literally save me hours every day. How do you keep on top of all of Google's new features? Easy. With Certified Knowledge, their interactive learning modules keep me up to date. And if there's something I don't know, I can watch their video lessons without having to hunt around the Google help files. Great. I'm ready to expand my knowledge. Hi, I'm Brad Geddes. I'm the only leader officially supported by Google to teach the advanced track of the AdWords Seminars for Success. I personally recommend CertifiedKnowledge.org as your one-stop shop for all your PPC needs. Learn. Optimize. Connect. Be smart. Go to CertifiedKnowledge.org now. Two, one, booster ignition. Ascend into new heights of ranking and revenue with a search engine-friendly online shopping cart that's ready for liftoff. Introducing Ascender Cart. Ascender Cart optimizes your shopping cart with easy-to-use SEO tools that will help build keywords, titles, and tags for top search engine rankings. Get all of the advantages of having a shopping cart on your site and monitor your progress with regular reports in just a click. Prepare to launch your shopping cart to the top of the search engines with Ascender Cart. Learn more about what Ascender Cart can do for you at AscenderCart.com. A-S-C-E-N-D-E-R-C-A-R-T.com. Your advertising message is only as effective as your placement when you advertise with WebmasterRadio.fm. From 30-second commercials to 30-minute monthly programs, our team is comparable to any ad agency when it comes to production, placement, and positioning your message to not only the advertising world, but an even bigger audience of our loyal listeners and podcasters. Contact sales at WebmasterRadio.fm for a consultation today. Advance your affiliate marketing efforts every week on Affiliate Buzz. 
Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific, or on demand anytime inside the Affiliate Marketing Channel, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. And we're back, and we're going to hear a different viewpoint on the Do Not Track um, proposal. We have Baron Zoka, the, the president of Tech Freedom. And um, Baron, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And tell me, what is Tech Freedom? Uh, it's a new digital policy think tank. I, for the last uh, three years, ran the internet policy program at the Progress and Freedom Foundation, and I'm basically continuing that work. Uh, we have a number of other issues we're working on, but privacy has really been at the top of our list uh, over the last three years. And um, in a nutshell, privacy really is, is a good demonstration of our general approach to all internet policy, which is to always and everywhere um, be skeptical uh, about regulation and to try to think uh, cautiously about what's going to happen. And you know the the thing that I always uh, use as an analogy. Some great wit once said that the art of public policy could be summed up in, in a single question, which is, "And then what?" So, <laughs> and 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 think about that. I mean, like let that sit in your head for a day, and it it really will change how you think about politics, because um, there are most people who who engage in public policy. Even the best and the smartest and best intentions ones really don't live that that mantra, because and I think this this is a great example as we can talk about where I'm actually pretty sympathetic um, to a lot of the things that Chris was saying and to the idea that we ought to be focusing on giving consumers better empowerment tools because that's really been at the core of the message that uh, my colleague Adam Fear and I, when I was at the Progress and Freedom Foundation. Uh, that we um, focused on in our work here, but also in the context of online child safety and parental controls, where we join uh, hands with our friends at the ACLU and Center for Democracy and Technology and the Electronic Frontier Foundation, again and again in court filings and agency filings, saying that uh, if we're concerned that uh, kids might get access to information that is uh, potentially objectionable or harmful or sexually inappropriate or whatever, that the answer is not for government to censor content or to dictate what happens online, but to give parents better tools to let parents choose for themselves. And I'm explaining this because this really is the analogy that we follow here in the privacy context. And Bennett, you really put your finger on this when you on this analogy, which most people don't, when you mention the example in Australia where the Australian government, um, in a sense, they kind of co-opted this message of empowerment where they said, oh, well, empowerment's great, but we're going to build the empowerment tools uh, and we're going to build the filters. So they really went, and again, somewhat, somewhat akin to what's going on here with Do Not Track, they went beyond simply saying that government regulation should yield where there are effective user empowerment tools. And in that case, the Australian government actually wrote their own filters, and they, they basically put themselves in the content blocking business. But uh, here you have a situation with Internet Explorer nine, and what is and the market share of IE is is quite large. And yeah, so, so if, if they adopt a, a system, 
you know, that means de facto you have 60% or 70% of the market all of a sudden now has this list that God knows where it came from. Right. Now, let's, let's get into that. But before we do that, I just want to make uh, just a few other quick points just to set the stage for people that may not be as, as familiar with the privacy debate. So the, mm-hmm. the most important thing for people to realize is that, again, the ACLU and a lot of the groups that have been, have been uh, cheering on the Federal Trade Commission uh, are on the same side as us uh, on a lot of other privacy issues. And so today, for example, this morning, uh, a joint statement went out on not expanding CALEA, the Community Assistance Law Enforcement Act, uh, to cover online services, which, to make a long story short, could potentially uh, – put the government in the driver's seat of designing online services so that they would be wiretap ready. So I'm just, I'm mentioning that as an example of where there is actually a broad agreement on the left and the right, if you want to use those terms, that we really do need to be careful about the greatest uh, threat to our online privacy, which is government. And Chris mentioned that. And Chris talked about our our Fourth Amendment rights. And so we, we work with them very hard on that. But I think that's where this conversation has to start because when we talk about the First and the Fourth Amendment, we need to be very clear that we're talking about rights against government action. Right? That's, what, True. that's what those things are. Right? And so I join forces with him in saying not only that we need to be very careful about expanding laws like CALEA and also that we ought to, on a more positive note, we ought to uh, actually use this opportunity now to reform the very outdated laws that protect our data in the cloud from government access – so again, those are areas of broad agreement. Here, we we you know the table sort of um, or the alignment shifts, and it shifts in a few ways. So the groups that generally like our friends at ACLU and CDT and EFF that are generally always very cautious about government intervention and always uh, join with us in saying that uh, better user empowerment and better user education and enforcement of existing laws are the place to start. A lot of that stuff um, goes out the window, and it might be a little bit strong, uh, but a lot of that gets forgotten here, and we sort of rush into government-led solutions. And I, I want to be clear here that in the particular case of Do Not Track, we are talking about a user empowerment tool. So they're not being – I'm not saying that they're being hypocritical. Mandated by the government, but yes. And that's now, that's, now that's, that's exactly my point is – it's a very different thing. I mean, for example, it's a very different thing in a parental control context to say that we want there to be a flourishing of parental control tools in the marketplace so that parents can choose tools that allow them to control what their kids see. That's very different from saying, as you, as you, put, as you put it, Bennett, that the government should be the ones that are dictating standards and mandating uh, either a particular list or the configuration of a mechanism. And and you know, some people will think, well, who cares? You know, it's really important here that we have clear standards. And, and I actually I sort of agree, but I don't think it necessarily follows that it's the government that should be in the position of – I remember when this issue first came up, when the whole proposal was first introduced, it was at an FTC conference on behavioral advertising. And the, I remember Jeff Chester from the Center for Digital Democracy um, standing at the FTC conference room in New Jersey Avenue, you know, with the Capitol behind him, only you know, two blocks away, saying that you know, this issue was, um, you know, would determine the fate of our of our republic. 
at the very same time when Congress was debating the whole question of torture, you know, it just seemed that um, it, got, it got introduced as this you know, huge issue of such great magnitude when I, I really don't think people had it in context, which may explain why some groups jumped on it so quickly. And Bennett, I think this was the point of your suicide question, which to some listeners might have seemed uh, a little bit out of left field at first, but actually I think is very – you make an important and profound point. I played point. left field when I was a kid. <laughs> well, and, and the question here is really what's the harm that we're talking about? And when you, when you contrast you know, the, the very real harm that comes from, for example, gay teens killing themselves or – government getting access to data and putting people in prison and then potentially torturing them, right? When you contrast that with the, the phantasms of harm that have been raised in this debate, I, I, I think it becomes clear how, how little um, context there really is. So let me be more concrete because that's very high level. What I'm getting at here is there's a big difference between someone compiling a dossier of all of your browsing activity and then that being accessible to government, right? So that's, that's, I think, the situation that Chris validly fears. And I agree with him there, okay? But there are two, there are I think, three responses to that. One is, assuming that that, that sort of list existed, there are, there are legal ways to tie government's hands so the government can't get access to that data. So Chris and I would agree there that if whatever data is collected, government should should not so easily be able to get access to. And certainly, they should have to go through established uh, warrant procedures to make sure that there's probable cause and this isn't happening in the dark and so on. But isn't the there second, a danger with the private sector having amassed that, that level of information? Well, on that's someone? what I'm getting at. So that's what Chris is talking about, is the private sector collecting data and the government getting access to it. That's his primary concern. right? Now, I think he's also concerned about the private sector having it in general. But let me just make two other points to respond to that. The next point is... As a, as a practical matter in the marketplace, that's not the th- sort of profile that's actually collected because nobody wants the exact list of everything you do. What they want is no, the ad- for advertising. <laughs> well, no, well, hold on a second. For advertising purposes, this is an important distinction. If I'm an advertiser, I don't care uh, in most cases. You know, I, I don't want the whole download. It's not even – it's not – feasible or efficient for me to use it, what I want is to be able to go into an ad network and buy an ad that is shown to people who have, an, who have in their interest profile something that says that they like dog food or, or that they might be interested in buying it or whatever that thing is. So again, when we talk about harm, we have to be very specific about what is the specific technical situation we're talking about. Is it is it the collection of everything you do online and logging your keystrokes? Or is it the fact that you visit pets.com? Because those right. are very different things. And, and, and let me tie this to Do Not Track. My, my fundamental concern is that Do Not Track is the cru- – in the way that it's being launched now, and if you look at Mozilla, I think you see how this works, is just about the crudest mechanism uh, you could imagine for doing this. It, it, it's one box that says, I do not want websites to track me. It's not clear what that means uh, mm-hmm. for websites, what, what tracking means. But even if you came up with a good definition of it, and our friends at CDT are, are working on that, they're thinking this, this thing through to their credit. Even if you came up with a good definition, it's not a granular 
choice. There is no, there's no complexity to it. There's no, there's no diversity. And that is a problem because what we're talking about here is mucking with the basic implicit value exchange, the, the quid pro quo that makes the internet, that makes internet content available. So, but I guess is, the response to that would be if consumers don't know what information they're giving up, do they really know what the, the exchange is? Well, look, it doesn't doesn't a, a fair exchange require knowledge of on each side of what what I, they are getting? I, I want to be clear here. I'm, up. I, I'm not necessarily defending the status quo exactly. What I'm saying is that I. I I'm in favor of user empowerment tools. And in principle, I don't object to building a, especially if it happens in the marketplace, a tool that more easily facilitates a clear um, transaction. I mean, Chris was describing his tool as a sort of uh, a, a market-based mechanism that would allow consumers to sort of negotiate with websites. So in principle, I think that's very admirable. And if, if such a thing were feasible and could be implemented in a way that worked for everybody in the ecosystem, I, I think that's something that I, I personally would love to see happen. But we are so far away from that actually happening. Because, Why is that? I because mean, it seems like you, every you, browser says they have, they're going to introduce that capability. Well, remember what I, how I started this conversation. And then what? So what is it we think is going to happen in the marketplace? Because it, it, it's not as simple as you, you build an option in the browser that has a single box that users can check that say it says you know i don't want to be tracked for for this to actually be feasible and, and to work without killing that golden goose of, of advertising that mm-hmm. drives the internet ecosystem there's got to be a vehicle for websites to be able to respond to that so that if somebody says um, that they don't want to be tracked the website can actually negotiate with them I mean, put this in a, in, a, in a shorter sense. A no-cost opt-out is not scalable. What I mean by that is that it will work for a small number of people. So if, it, if, if you roll this out today, and indeed it's already in the beta of Firefox, but even if that were – let's say that were working in a wider sense. If it was a relatively small number of people, just as today there's an opt-out for network advertising, mm-hmm. the consequence would not be enormous. But of course, the people who are pushing this – their model for success is the do not call registry, which is a, the, the classic example of the no-cost opt-out, which is somebody is calling to interrupt your dinner and is providing nothing of value to you except maybe sometimes they'll tell you about a useful product, right? But they're not paying for your dinner. So when you no. opt out, there's no cost to you, right? There's n- it's not like you know media is affected. So if that's the model of getting huge numbers of people – to use this tool to opt out, this is going to be catastrophic if there isn't a way for websites to say, well, look, if you don't want to have this specific kind of tracking done, that's fine. But it's going to come at a cost. And the cost is, might be, uh, who knows? It could be you see more ads. You see uh, you have to pay for content. I mean, my, my point is that government certainly cannot design that sort of a marketplace from the top down. And I'm, I'm so, deeply concerned that we're already seeing bills in Congress that would require the FTC to start dictating technological mandates here. 
Because, you know, I, I, I will say I, I like Chris a lot and we work together regularly. But I think Chris really is not doing justice to the, the economics of this situation when he says that we've always had advertising. It's worked well in the past and so we don't need this sort of behavioral advertising. Well, the reality is the media has fundamentally changed from an era of scarcity where there were a very limited number of outlets in which to uh, show ads to, to the medium where advertising has been commoditized. Advertising is everywhere. And in order for that to have value for the, for the publishers of, of websites and services that rely on advertising, they have to be able to make that advertising relevant to us. So again, if you want to be able to opt out, that's fine. I'm all about empowering users to make that choice, but it cannot be free. And so that's, it, that's what we don't if have you're today. sitting at President Obama's desk and he's saying the bill says, Baron, which I do, yes or no, what would you say? To sign Representative Spears' bill? Yes. I would say absolutely not. I mean, it, it, it's, it is – it's not uh, – let me be clear here. At some point in the future, I might be okay with the FTC in the organic process that they use today, right, which is about unfair and deceptive practices. Correct. If, if, if a website says we honor do not track opt-out, well, the FTC should already be holding them to that. True. I could see that evolving further so that if this mechanism works in the marketplace and and this has actually been vetted in the real world, the FTC gets involved in some more robust way in enforcing that. But today, to think that the FTC is going to be able to make this mechanism work or, or, or design its specifications, because that's essentially what we're talking about, right? It was when government coming in and dictating – how this is going to work, I, I think is, is really naive, especially when you consider that, that Firefox and Internet Explorer are moving rapidly here, right? So this is not as if the marketplace is staying, you know, doing nothing, which is the argument that's been made for regulation in the past, that government has to intervene because market forces won't respond. Well, they are responding here. And, and the way that they're responding with these two new tools should show us how complicated and difficult this is because Internet Explorer 9 and Firefox 4 handle this problem in fundamentally different ways. So it, it, it just, again, highlights that government's really not in a position to, to come in here and, and choose the right answer. Well, thank you very much, Baron. It's been a pleasure. And if you do get the opportunity to sit, sit with President Obama, let me know. I'd like to hear how it goes. And I'm sure you guys would have a very interesting conversation. But um, it's always a pleasure, Baron. Thank you very much. And um, when we come back, we'll have Dan Tynan from eSarcasm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Do you look at the task of ranking your site at the top of the search engines like you would climbing the top of Mount Everest? It doesn't have to be. TopSEOs.com knows how hard that climb can be, and they can make top ranking a reality. Top SEOs send you to only the right search vendors and agencies that they know will work for you. Since 2002, TopSEOs.com has reviewed and researched the best search engine marketing agencies and solutions providers. Don't risk the cost of falling off the proverbial peak of search rankings. Let Top SEOs give you peace of mind. TopSEOs.com, the independent authority on search vendors. 
If you're looking for a new multifaceted SEO and social media tool set, look for the Raven. Raven has the important tools that every internet marketer needs. Raven offers customized metrics for managing link building campaigns, social media campaigns, with campaign reporting and research tools that you can easily manage. Build up campaign performance for your clients and give your team the tools that will make them soar. If you want to increase your internet marketing revenue, look for the Raven. Go to raventools.com. That's raventools.com. From domains to digital marketing, social media to blogging, you can reach this broad audience by using what you're listening to right now. Reach the thousands of internet marketers that download and listen live to the premier on-air and on-demand podcast network, webmasterradio.fm, with the Internet Marketing Channel, featuring shows like the Joel Com Show, the WordPress Community Podcast, and more. Our ad campaigns are fully integrated with multiple avenues of exposure, from slick, effective 30-second commercials to detailed, informative 30-minute town hall meetings. Expose your products and services to listeners and podcasters of not just shows like Market Edge and Domain Masters, but anyone looking for ways to market their business with your product. Contact sales at webmasterradio.fm to find out more. Life Tips. Making your life smarter, better, faster, wiser. Wednesdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. Or on demand anytime inside the entertainment channel. Only on webmasterradio.fm. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. And we're back, and we have with us um, Dan Tynan, um, who has the website eSarcasm, and is also a contributing editor editor to a number of magazines, Family Circle, and um, is it PC World? It's PC World. And, um, and Info so, World. Dan, it's a pleasure to have you. And uh, tell us, what is eSarcasm? Uh, eSarcasm is the uh, leading uh, portal for juvenile geek humor on the Internet. Uh, and that is entirely my opinion. But um, it's essentially a, a place where uh, I and my co-founder, J.R. Raphael, go to make fun of tech companies like Apple and Google and Microsoft and Apple again. Um, but you would never make fun of Webmaster deserve- Radio, though, would you? Oh, uh, not anymore. <laughs> we just stopped. As of like 15 minutes ago, we stopped. That, that new company policy. <laughs> yes, we have. So uh, it's mostly for fun. But, you know, and it's, you know, sometimes not safe for work. Um, certainly the language is not always safe for work. But mostly it's a way for us to vent because most of the time I spend my uh, days writing about technology in not necessarily a serious way, but in a less sarcastic way than I would there. Now, um, you re- recently covered um, a website called OKCupid. I did. Tell us a little bit about that site. Well, OKCupid is one of the 17 million different online dating sites in the world. Um, most people know about uh, things like eHarmony, um, and they know about Match.com uh, because these guys are very big and they advertise a lot. But OKCupid is a free online dating site. Um, so it's one of the few sites where you can actually just sign up and meet people without forking over 10 or $20 a month. Um, and it's unique in other ways. Um, one of the key ones is the kinds of data it gathers about its users and what it does with that data. 
Um, one of the things that people really like about OkCupid, okay which has about 7 million users, uh, is it has a blog called OK Trends where they guys who founded the site, who are all math geeks from Harvard, parse the data in interesting ways. And I, I noticed that the um, – well, why don't you tell us about some of the interesting ways because some of it were, were actually quite funny. Yeah, well, for example, um, they can tell you, uh, you know, the best kind of profile picture to use. For, you know, men, for example, do better. They get more contacts. They have more dates if they don't look at the camera hmm. if they're, and they're not smiling. If they're looking seriously into the distance, they tend to get more responses. Women, on the other hand, tend to get more responses if they're, you know, smiling, looking straight at the camera and showing you their breasts. So – that tells you a lot about men and women right there. Uh, another one is the best questions to ask on a first date if you want to score. Uh, our very recent OK Trends blog talked about the fact that you know they looked at their surveys online and they looked at the kind of responses you know people got and determined that if you ask your date whether they like the taste of beer and they say yes, you have a much better chance of hopping in the sack with them at the conclusion of the evening. Well, so I See, imagine that, that this site gets a lot of advertising from the beer companies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. Well, you got to love a site like that. It tells you what to do. So, I mean, it, it's very appealing. But what I wrote about was the fact that um, OkCupid was just purchased after running independently for seven years by the same company that owns Match.com. And that company is IAC, which used to stand for Interactive Corp. And they're very big. They own, among other things, um, College Humor. They own Ask.com, the search engine. They own the Daily Beast, which recently merged with Newsweek. Um, they own a wide number, like 50 or 60 web properties. And they're run by Barry Diller, who I think used to be head of Paramount. So they're, they're a giant. big deal. They're giant. And they just purchased OKCupid. Now, why I wrote about this was because another thing that's really unique about OKCupid is the fact that users of the site can write their own questions and submit them to other people. And so uh, these questions can be very detailed, they can be very specific, and they can ask you about things like, you know, how do you feel about marijuana? Do you use hard drugs? Um, what's your attitude about sexually transmitted diseases? Do you like bondage? What other sexual proclivities do you have, et cetera, et cetera? Now, it the sounds idea, like the application for a Republican to run for Congress. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Yes, In and the more, the more times you check yes, the more likely you're going to be elected. But So people do these things. They put these questions out there, and they answer them, and they, they answer them publicly so anyone else can see them. Uh, they do this so they can get a better match, uh, so they can find someone else who you know feels the same way about STDs, marijuana, and bondage as they do, which makes sense. Uh, the thing is, though, that IAC, this large corporation, now owns all of that data. So the question I had was, what are they going to do with it? So you're afraid of this big beer and bondage department in IAC. Exactly, exactly. Am I going to start seeing targeted ads for beer and bondage now because we have behavioral tracking? Um, and, uh, and is that more likely to be a Stella Artois type of commercial or, <laughs> or, or is that a Pabst Blue Ribbon? I think St. Paul Girl, actually, because <laughs> – I can sort of tell just by the way she looks that she's definitely into the, the whole straps and other <laughs> But yeah, I, the, the idea really is it's about data mining. And in that way, it relates back to your earlier discussion about do not track, which is also about data mining. 
the idea here, the difference here is that with do not track, at least in theory, that data is being mined anonymously. I'm not convinced it is actually. But um, here, that data is attached to your identity. Yes. So that's a big difference right there. Now, I have to say I talked to the CEO of OkCupid who doesn't like me very much right now because I quoted him accurately. <laughs> Damn, I hate it when that happens. <laughs> yes. um, and he basically said, uh, "Can you know?" I asked him, I said, okay, what's going to happen to this data? He says, nothing's going to happen to this data. He says, it's still going to be guided by our privacy policy and their privacy policy is pretty good and not by IAC's privacy policy, which sucks. Uh, IAC's privacy policy basically says you give us your your data and we'll share it with every other IAC company and carefully selected partners, which pretty yeah, they, much they means call it that the, uh, with the yeah the cafeteria plan. Yeah, basically. Or RC buffet. So, yeah, so IAC also said for the time being they have no plans to use that data or. Uh, apply their own privacy policy to it. So for the time being, people who use OkCupid will still be using OkCupid in the same way, and they'll still be governed by the same rules. The problem here is that privacy policies change, as you know. Yes. And, and they can change Thankfully. however... Well, sometimes <laughs> they call me to write them. <laughs> Damn, I should call you to write a privacy policy. You probably charge us money, though. Um, I might. Yeah, so they change, and usually not for the better. <laughs> you, the history of privacy policies on the internet is uh, they started by saying we greatly honor and deeply respect your privacy. We'd never do anything to harm it. Uh, and then they go on and enumerate all the ways they're going to harm it. Or say you have none. Yeah. Say so you have um, none. But yeah. I actually think there has been a positive trend in, in the market uh, in privacy, at least in terms of the format. I think you're mm-hmm. seeing more of a template-based um, privacy policy where there at least is some summary mechanism so right. for the consumer to read it. I mean, I worked with one client and we we, we bragged about that. We're, we're giving you a 300-word summary. You know, the average mm-hmm. um, privacy policy is something like, you know, 2,000 words. Right. And they're here, here, in a nutshell, this is what you need to know. And every, every, if you want to keep reading, keep reading, there's the rest of the policy. I think that's good. And then, you know, it's funny, IAC does that as well. Uh, they have a summary privacy policy, which is what you see. You have to sort of dig for the details um, to get at the deeper one, which tells you actually in a little bit more detail who they're really sharing the information with, but not detailed enough for me personally. Well, what would you want? Well, I realize this is probably too much to ask for, but I'd like to know who they're sharing it with. Well, that's the problem. You, know? you don't know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I, as someone might said, there are unknowns and then there's no uh, unknown unknowns. I think that's Donald Rumsfeld said that, wasn't it? Yes, he has a book coming out too. <laughs> yes, you can kill a small dog with that book. It's 700 pages long. Uh, <laughs> and he, people probably have killed small dogs with that book because what else would you use it for? Um, but, well, I'm glad to hear that privacy policies are improving uh, because my experience has been that um, companies are grabbing more and more rights because they're realizing the value of that data, especially – as it relates to other things you do outside of their particular purview, outside of their site. And that, again, well, brings us to tracking. Let me, let me just make clear that Webmaster Radio um, does not advocate harming animals with um, <laughs> books by former Bush administration <laughs> officials, um, just so that that's clear on the record. And um, so um, we've got a little bit of time left. 
And yep. uh, one of the big things in the news was the acquisition of, uh, or the merger, I should say, of AOL and Huffington Post. And yep. um, and I, I, in full disclosure, I'm a columnist for Huffington Post, actually their first award winner. And um, but what is what is your reaction to that? And do you do you see yourself being acquired by AOL too? <laughs> we are desperate to be acquired by somebody, frankly. Um, but yeah, that would be nice. Uh, I'd even take three hundred fifteen dollars. You know, we're, we're, we're cheap. Brasco, you um, have a five? You can make it up to three twenty. <laughs> maybe. Um, HuffPo. Uh, what I call this is what I call this is the um, crapification of everything, and the reason I call it that is because it is really a, a merger of two like two like entities, but they're entities that. You know, I'm not sure anyone else should like. Um, Huffington Post does some really good things. They have some really good columnists, including one guy who writes about law, and, and I heard about once who won an award. But <laughs> and you know, they have some good stuff, but it's a cacophony of, of voices, and mostly it is they're doing they're they're doing very well at doing what a lot of other people are doing, which is just repeating actual reporting. They're repeaters, not reporters. You now they'll go Managers. in. And, yeah. Yes. What they what they are nuts. Yes. Well, it, what the, the word in vogue is curating, quote-unquote. So they're curating the web. What they're doing is they're taking stories that people like me wrote uh, or people you know, at New York Times or Washington Post or Wall Street Journal wrote, and they're summarizing them and getting, beating them through the traffic. So the people who actually got paid to write stuff. <laughs> the people who actually get paid to write stuff aren't getting the traffic. The, the you know, 20-something staff editors at HuffPo who are rewriting are getting all the traffic. Uh, and this fits the AOL model, which is, you know, produce as much content as cheaply as possible and attach as much advertising to it as you can and throw it on the web. That's this, their model. This kind of brings us to the, the start of the program because I heard one rumor that um, Murdoch and um, News Corp is very much a supporter of the um, IE9 type of uh, list because they see it as a way to harm um, aggregators. Mm-hmm and you know, make people ultimately pay for content. Well, you know, Murdoch is the one guy who's still pushing paywalls. Yes. Pushing them harder than anybody else. So, uh, and he believes he can make it work. The problem with paywalls, of course, is that once somebody reads your story and jump, pays for the thing and they publish their summary of it, it's a commodity. It's on the internet. So a paywall delays by five minutes the process he's trying to kill off. Well, there's a lot you can do in five minutes, but <laughs> <laughs> true. But um, yeah, I hadn't heard that about Murdoch trying to, to sort of kill off um, ad tracking. That's interesting. And I don't know if that's true. I, it's just a rumor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, for those, if, if that's Mr. Murdoch on the other line, um, you know, I, I repeat that that it was a rumor. I don't know if it's true. <laughs> and um... <laughs> no, he'll just lace your cocktail with polonium. That's how I think how he operates. But uh, well, it's kind of early. It's only it's only morning here in the West Coast. So if I'm doing cocktails this this long this uh, this hour a day, the program's not going to last that long anyway. But but um, well, it's always been a pleasure, Dan. We're, um, and we're glad that you were able to join us. And I um, hope you will come back. It's Dan Tynan at E Sarcasm, and um, which actually does have some sarcasm, and. Um, well, and Definitely check it out and check and follow him on Twitter. He's a very funny guy. Um, thanks again, Dan, and um, hopefully you'll join us next week 
when we will be live. Unfortunately, I'm traveling this week, so we'll be taping this program. But um, I hope, look forward to being live with you next week on Cyber Law and Business Report. This is Bennett Kelly with the Internet Law Center. Thank you for joining us. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.